Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med Peter Beinart. Han er professor i statskundskab og journalistik ved City University of New York. Han er redaktør ved magasinet Jewish Currents. Han er forfatter til bøgerne Why Liberals and Only Liberals Can Win the War on Terror og The Crisis of Zionism. Men først og fremmest er Peter Beinart en af de store liberale intellektuelle i USA, som har forholdt sig rigtig meget til konflikten mellem israelerne og palæstinenserne. Han har engageret sig i den i kommentarer, indlæg, optrædende på diverse medier og tv-kanaler. Han er en af de liberale intellektuelle, der i de senere år i USA har domineret hele den samtale. Han skrev en uge efter Hamas terrorattentat i Israel, den 7. oktober, et fantastisk essay i The New York Times, der There is Jewish hope for Palestinian liberation. It must survive. I det essay sammenligner han palæstinensernes situation med i Israel med de sorte situation i Sydafrika. Hans forældre er fra Sydafrika, og han er ud af en familie, der udvandrede fra Sydafrika til Cambridge, Massachusetts. Det betyder, at han har hele apartheid-historien som sin egen baggrundshorisont. Og han har set på nærmest hold, hvordan gode, humanistiske, liberale, hvide mennesker moralsk kunne retfærdiggøre uligheden mellem sorte og hvide i Sydafrika for sig selv. Han har set, hvordan man kan normalisere noget, som man ikke bør leve med, og han har også set, hvordan man kan gøre op med det. Han sammenligner i essayet situationen for palæstinenserne og for sydafrikanerne. Der er nogle ligheder, men der er også nogle meget store forskelle. En af forskellene er naturligvis, at sydafrikanerne, altså ANC, African National Congress, de havde et samlingspunkt. De havde et legitimt udgangspunkt for det, han kalder for en etisk modstandskamp, som kunne samle meget stor opbakning. Det har palæstinenserne overhovedet ikke på samme måde. De er splittet mellem Hamas, der har gennemført det her afskyelige terrorattentat, og det korrupte selvstyre på Vestbreden. Det er parallelle, men helt forskellige situationer, de to står i. Ud fra dem prøver han i S'et at tænke situationen hele vejen igennem. Jeg har også brugt Peter Beinart til at stille nogle af de spørgsmål, som jeg selv synes er utrolig svære. Nærmest det moralsk-filosofiske spørgsmål. Hvordan insisterer man på den ene side på at holde Hamas til ansvar for deres egne handlinger? Udgangspunktet må være, at dem, der begår mor, de selv bærer det moralske ansvar for dem. Men på den anden side, hvordan holder man det op imod, at de finder sted i en ganske bestemt kontekst? En kontekst af systematisk undertrykkelse, systematisk ufrihed og en kontekst, hvor de forskellige legitime politiske veje for politisk indflydelse for palæstinenserne er blevet blokeret. Ikke bare af Israel, men så sandelig også af Vesten. Hvordan balancerer man den enkelte handling og hele konteksten moralsk? Hvordan forholder man sig kritisk til Israel uden at forfalde til Antisemitisme, hvordan er alle de her svære balancegange i hele diskussionen om det? Det handler kort og sagt om, at man skal kunne rumme to modsatrettede tanker i hovedet på samme tid, hvis man overhovedet vil gøre sig gældende i den her samtale. Og til at hjælpe os med det, er Pina Beinart en kæmpestor hjælp. Og jeg kan afsløre, at det også ender med, at jeg spørger ham, hvordan han ser en fred. Her er min samtale med Peter Beinart, som er en meget travl herre, så han havde en halv time, hvor vi talte sammen meget hurtigt og kom rigtig hurtigt rundt, og så tog vi hurtigt afsked igen. God fornøjelse.
I want to ask you first a personal question because I, I you told somewhere that you're out of a Jewish family that migrated from South Africa to yes. the U.S. And my impression is that you're out of a very political family uh, as well. How, how did that shape your political understanding and worldviews, having uh, migrated from South Africa and growing up knowing South Africa and Israel at the same time? So on the one hand, I think coming from a South African Jewish experience um, um, makes one aware to some degree of the fragility of diaspora Jewish life, because um, even though South African Jews were privileged, it was a small community. Um, and it was a community where many people didn't stay in South Africa um, necessarily for many generations. And it was an intensely Zionist community, very intensely Zionist community, and including in my own family. And I think that more than even the United States, because in the United States, there's more of a kind of national identity for American Jews as Americans. South African Jews didn't feel much of a national allegiance to South Africa. Their, their focus was really, their, by the, the idea was that you were kind of in South Africa by accident in many ways, but that your focus of your national allegiance was to the Jewish national project in Israel. Um, um, and um, and my particular my grandmother, who was born in Egypt and then grew up in the Belgian Congo, uh, especially had a big influence on me. She always basically said Israel is really the only place where Jews will really be at home. Um, on the other hand, um, what I saw in South Africa was that Jewish fears um, um, and the Jewish story often became a way of excusing or sidestepping or apologizing for a very a very kind of profound repression that was taking place. And so in a way, coming from a South African family, complicated or often offered a different kind of story to the more, I would say, more typical story, which is of the story of kind of Jewish victimhood, because South African Jews were considered white. And so then they were also beneficiaries of apartheid. And I saw the way that good people, including people that I loved, rationalized this system of inhumanity um, and the way in which those rationalizations could kind of sound plausible at the time. But when you had distance from it, you realized that um, that um, they made no sense, not just intellectually, but also morally. And the people that I grew up kind of, um, I came to, to, to really admire and my heroes were the, the Jews in the African National Congress, um, who I think played a People like like Joe Slovo, Albie Sachs, um, Dennis Goldberg, many, many others, very disproportionate percentage of the whites who were influential in the ANC were Jewish. And I think for me, they represented the idea that you could take from Jewish tradition um, inspiration for a struggle for equality and freedom for all people. And I think they played a very, very important role in South Africa, even though their numbers were not great. They were very important in helping the ANC create a vision of that wasn't a, a struggle of black versus white, but it was a struggle mostly of black people, but also whites and others for a vision of equality, um, a humanistic vision. And, and, and that, I think, has shaped the way I think about Israel-Palestine. And and when did you? Because we we're a leftist paper, but but we're a sensible leftist paper, I would say. And, and so we've been very very careful not to use the word apartheid about Israel because it's used against a lot 
by a lot of people who, who doesn't want anything good for Israel. So actually, I saw you on CNN a couple of years ago, and you were using uh, the word, and that, that made me reconsider. And first, then I realized that Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch were using it not as a moral term, but as a, as a, as a legal concept. When did you become aware of the parallel between the two? You know, I think that um, I was influenced by those Human Rights Watch and in Amnesty reports, but and also by the report of B'Tselem, which is Israel's leading human rights organization, and Yeshdin, another Israeli human rights organization, um, uh, and a lot of Palestinian writing. And I think, you know, there's a tendency to think, well, apartheid is an apartheid was an Afrikaans word which meant apartness. So you think, well, there are a lot of there are differences between the Israeli situation and South Africa, but. I think when I began to, to to read and think more and realize that apartheid doesn't refer to just to the specifics of South Africa, but it refers to basically a system of kind of of domination uh, by one illegal domination by one group over another. It could be a racial, religious, ethnic group. Then I think it becomes hard to say that it doesn't apply in Israel-Palestine. Certainly in the West Bank, literally. Jews and Palestinians live under different legal systems. Jews are citizens of the state of Israel. They live under, they have due process, free movement, the right to vote. Palestinians have none of those things. So that's a pretty basic a, a, a example of this difference in legal systems. It's more complicated when one looks inside, inside Israel proper, where Palestinians have citizenship. But even there, when you actually see the way the state operates, you see that there are very profound legal differences between the with kind of experience of citizenship that Palestinian citizens and Israeli and Jewish citizens have. And also the point that these reports made was that it no in a situation where Israel has so clearly entrenched a one-state reality, it doesn't necessarily make so much sense to see these areas as separate because Israel has essentially created one entity between the river and the sea. So that's why I began using the term. In your piece in, in New York Times, which is one of the best pieces I read during this uh, this crisis, you make a parallel between the resistance, what you call ethical resistance in, in, in South Africa and the uh, situation in Palestine and, and, and Israel. And I should emphasize, of course, you also point to very, very important differences. But, but you say there's a, an inspiration to be drawn from the South African experience. Yes. Uh, by ethical, I should make it clear, I don't necessarily mean purely nonviolent because the African National Congress did use armed resistance um, uh, starting in the early 1960s, but they did make a, a significant effort not to attack civilians. Um, and they and they and part of the reason they didn't was because they didn't want to alienate white South Africans. They, they wanted to try to ultimately bring them over to a vision of equality and freedom. And I think that the, the point I was trying to make here was that um, another reason the ANC was able to, to hold to that vision, even though there were people in Black South Africa, in Black South African politics who had a, quite a different vision, a much more racialized, exclusive vision, was that they saw that their ethical resistance was working. They saw that it was having an effect around the world. And the point I wanted to make about Palestinian resistance is that I think one of the things that has empowered Hamas and this terrifying, terrible massacre that they, they, they carried out on October 7th is that Palestinian efforts that are framed in the language of human rights and international law and um, uh, are, have been defeated. So 
when you when Palestinians have gone to the UN and the International Criminal Court, and when they when asked for various forms of boycotts and sanctions on the model of South Africa, the United States uh, and European countries, but especially the United States, have really helped Israel defeat those efforts. Um, and so it frustrates me a lot that people like me who support Palestinian rights are called the friends of Hamas, because I actually really think it's quite the opposite, that the people who have empowered Hamas have been the people who have defeated, and in many cases, the United States even criminalized forms of nonviolent and ethical resistance in the language of human rights and international law. And then what do they think was going to happen? They thought Palestinians would just say, okay, well, so we give up, we're going to live without basic human rights. No. People, if you shut down one form of resistance, people will seek another form of resistance. And, and that has empowered Hamas's and its kind of very unethical form of resistance, this kind of violent, terrible massacre that it committed on October 7th. And th that touches something that I think is very, very hard to write about or even think about how to hold both parties accountable in an asymmetrical conflict, you know, saying, yeah. well, well, on the one hand, we condemn the attacks of Hamas, the method yeah. of, of resistance, the targets. Yes. On the other hand, we also hold the Israelis accountable for the yeah. political context and for the avenues of resistance yeah. that they have allowed. How do you deal with this uh, conflict? I mean, I, look, I start with the principle that the primary and fundamental moral responsibility for anyone who takes a human life, especially a civilian human life, rests with the person who does it, right? So for that reason, no matter what the provocation that Israel committed against Palestinians, and there were, of course, profound provocations. I mean, a blockade of Gaza that had made Gaza unlivable, according to the United Nations, Gaza called an open-air prison by Human Rights Watch, the attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank, that no provocation justifies the killing of, of, of civilian life and the people who were responsible are the people who pulled the trigger. And by that very same logic, Israel bears moral responsibility for the vast number of civilians that it is killing in Gaza. Yes, Israel was provoked in a, in a terrible way by what Hamas did. Yes, Hamas hides among civilian populations, as do, by the way, most insurgency groups, right? That's the way insurgencies generally operate. It's not like the Viet Cong in, 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 in Vietnam when they were fighting the United States basically just walked out into the fields and tried to separate themselves from villagers. That's how they fight. So that's how Hamas is fighting, right? Ultimately, the moral principle that I start with is you are responsible when you pull the trigger and you kill uh, when you kill an innocent person. Um, and 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 um, we need to create uh, we, we need to change the context, the political context, the kind of uh, the human context so that both Israeli Jews and Palestinians can be safer because I think their safety is intertwined and. Ultimately, systems of oppression are systems of violence. When you deny people their basic rights, you are imposing huge amounts of violence upon them. And that violence is going to create more violence. It doesn't justify reciprocal violence, not at all, but it is more likely to create it. So we need to create pathways in which Palestinians can, can pursue their, their legitimate right to freedom, in ways that don't endanger Israeli Jews. Something that you've pointed to several times, and I should say I'm not an expert on theological matters, not on, on, on Judaism, but something that you've pointed to several times is the tension in Judaism between universalism, 
some of the things you were inspired yeah. by in South Africa. Yeah. And you know, and the and that it's a it's a family. And yes. being from Europe, I see it kind of as a version of conservatism, nativism versus liberalism. I see it as as a political conflict that we recognize here. Yes. But it's yes. special for Israel. I, I mean, I think you're right that everyone, perhaps in some different form, has some version of this tension, right? Because I think many of us, I would hope, um, believe in the in the value of all human beings and believe that all that that, that there, we have universal moral obligations. But of course, we're also embedded in particular contexts. We have a special obligation to our own families, right? And then many other people feel they have a special obligation to other kinds of communities, religious communities, national communities, others. And so there's an inherent tension there, right? Um, I think that because because um, Judaism is a religion that also sees its that that, that, that imagines its 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 adherents as members of a of a people. Um, again, imagined as a kind of a family in the story of, of Genesis, a kind of story of a family that becomes a people in the book of Exodus that's kind of, that's an expansion of this extended family. They say, we say, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, Israel being the name that Jacob is given after he wrestles with the angel. I think it has a different, uh, a different context than in Christianity and Islam, which are basically religions that because they proselytized, became religions that swept across the globe, encompassing many, many, many nations and many, many different peoples. Um, and so I think for me, what I struggle with is um, how to reconcile the sense of solidarity and obligation that I do feel towards other Jews. We are, they're not that many of us. And, um, and it is a group of people who, um, we don't just have this theological idea, it's been cemented, you could say, by experiences of oppression and trauma. Um, and so there is a, you know, there is a kind of obligation. There's a line that says, you know, Jews are are obligated to to be responsible for one another. How to how to reconcile that with the um, with the universal obligation, especially to the people that Israel has power over, the Palestinians. And so I guess what I try to do is look for ways of minimizing the tension by looking for ways in which my in in which Jewish safety and Palestinian safe, safety. Are um, uh, are intertwined that they're not zero sum um, that that ultimate and that's ultimately what I believe is 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 the case that, that 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 you know as Martin Luther King talked about white and black Americans that they were they were they were together in an in a in one garment of destiny um, and this is what he said to white Americans very often you know what you do in the ghetto will come back to you and I think that's the way that I would like more Jews to think about Palestinians that um, that. Are we will not Jews is in Israel will not be safe ultimately if Palestinians are not safe, and that uh, of course seems very very difficult at the moment to bring that insight into into political action. And another question that I think relates to the the parallel between South Africa and Israel is of course the role of America because when I was a child I remember my parents telling me that now they're protesting in the American universities against apartheid and they would say this is going to change the dynamic so now we have uh, young people saying well actually they're protesting at the american universities against uh, the israeli occupation of palestine how do yeah. you see the parallels between the two um it is it's interesting i mean i i, I do think there are the the same kind of people 
who were involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Um, and before that were involved in movements against the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement. In, in a new generation, those people I think are now many of them involved in the struggle for Palestinian freedom. But it's a more difficult struggle than the, than the anti-apartheid movement for a number of reasons. First of all, the anti-apartheid movement in the United States was, was led in significant measure by black Americans based on their own way of connecting to what happened in South Africa. Um, there is not a, um, the, the, the kind of, there, if you look at Palestinian or Arab or Muslim Americans in the United States, they don't have the same influence in American politics and they've often been really repressed since 9-11. So that's one thing. The other thing is that what the, one of the things the anti-apartheid movement had, which was critically important, was it had the African National Congress and its local ally, the United Democratic Front. It had the Freedom Charter as a vision. It had the ANC's call for um, sanctions and divestment. What you have in Palestinian politics is you have civil society groups that have called for what's called BDS, Boycott Divestment Sanction. But you don't have a political party that, that people can look to as representing a moral vision uh, and a vision of what a better, a better kind of outcome could be. You have a kind of corrupt authoritarian collaborationist Palestinian Authority, and then you have an Islamist uh, group in Gaza that has now shown it doesn't really care very much about the sanctity of, of civilian life. And so you don't have that moral center that people can organize around. And I think that is limiting. Also, Israel is a much more powerful country than South Africa was. It is a military, technological, economic power in a way that South Africa was. And so the notion that you can, and it also has the, it, it builds upon, I think sometimes in uh, in pro very problematic and even cynical ways, but it builds upon the story of Jewish dispossession and oppression, which is a very powerful competing narrative to the Palestinian narrative. So for all of these reasons, I think that creating an anti-apartheid movement in Israel-Palestine is much more difficult than it was in South Africa. I have the feeling, but that's just from someone looking at the outside, that yeah. the American political establishment, to some extent, I wouldn't say abandoned, but they looked away from Palestine for a while. I, I see Joe Biden as someone who actually almost gave up on them and continued with the Abraham Accords. And then there's this tension between a young population that did not give up on it, but it was actually mobilized by it, yes. and and Joe Biden who failed them. But I may I may be too hard on Biden here. No, I think you're entirely right. I think the Biden administration is really focused on this new Cold War with China and Russia and sees almost everything through that lens. Um, so that makes Israel-Palestine not very important. Um, it's much more interested in kind of making sure that Saudi Arabia stays on America's side rather, goes, rather than going to China's side. Um, secondly, Joe Biden um, sees that politically in Washington, Putting any pressure on Israel is very, very difficult. And he's just never shown any interest in that political, willing to have that political fight. I think he saw that Barack Obama did a little bit and he wanted no part of that because he didn't feel like it worked out well for Obama. And I frankly don't think that that Ob Biden has, I think Obama understood much more what it was like to be a Palestinian, what it was like mm -hmm. to have that experience given his own very unusual experience as a black American growing up in Indonesia, child of, a, of someone who was who grew up under colonialism in Kenya. I don't think Biden has any life experience that really allows him to identify with Palestinians in the same way. So they basically said, we're just manage this problem, try to keep it on a low 
flame um, and focus on bigger fish. Um, and, and that contributed, I think, to this sense of despair that made it easier for Hamas to do what it did. Again, I'm not saying that anyone but Hamas bears the moral responsibility, but I think by the sense that the world and America wasn't making any effort, not just making any effort, but that was gonna protect, that was gonna basically make it help Israel just continue to dispossess Palestinians for, uh, for years and years and years and years with no potential for change. I think that made it easier for Hamas to do what it did. Again, looking at it from the outside, when I was young, we always expected America to have leverage everywhere. Mm. And now it seems like, you know, and I actually, I should say, I have a lot of sympathy for Joe Biden for his uh, economic transformations and for his progressive policies. But he seems to me like the last old man from the old world. And he's trying, trying, trying this old play of diplomacy in, in, the, in the Middle East. Does the U.S. still have leverage over Israel? I mean, the U.S. does have leverage. It's just that it won't use it. I mean, the, there may be many places where the U.S. doesn't have a lot of leverage. But Israel is the country that the U.S. gives $3.8 billion in military aid to a year and protects Israel at the, United, at the Security Council, at the International Criminal Court. Without American protection, uh, without American weaponry, Israel would still be a strong military, but uh, it relies on American weaponry. And also, without America, Israel would be much more likely to face international sanctions and condemnation. So, um, yes, America does have leverage. The, the, the problem is that because of the constellation of political forces in the United States, it's very difficult to lose to use that leverage because you would, uh, you know, when Obama tried to do it, even in the mildest of ways at the beginning of his presidency over Israeli settlements, he was basically not just abandoned by his own, by the Republicans. But he was often, but many in his own party would not support him. So unless you change that political reality in Washington, it makes it hard for an American president to use the leverage. But that is somehow reassuring because it does mean that our public discourse and our democracy have some kind of influence on, on what's going on because it seems hopeless at the moment being spectators to a humanitarian disaster unfolding. Yes. I mean, part of the problem, though, is that American politics um, is not really that democratic, um, you know, that that. Um, so, for instance, the role of, of money in American elections is is massive. And you if you look at the public opinion among Democrats in the country, most Democrats in the country want the U.S. to pursue a different policy towards Israel, one that would be um, put more pressure on Israel on questions like settlement growth and and not support kind of essentially unconditional U.S. military aid. Um, but most Democrats in Congress don't support that view. And, and, and one reason they don't is because there are organized interest groups that have started putting a lot of money into American elections and really frightening Democratic politicians that if they take even a mildly pro-Palestinian position, they could lose their seats or at the very least, they will have very, very difficult campaigns. And politicians generally don't like that. They want the path of least resistance. So for that reason, it's hard to translate public opinion um, into American policy on this issue. I have just one last question. I think there are a lot of people here in Denmark yeah. who, on the one hand, wants to be absolutely clear against anti-Semitism yeah. and, and anti-Semitism also in the pro-Palestinian movement. So, yes. And yet want to maintain 
support for a liberation of, uh, of, of Palestine. And this is an issue that you dealt with just yeah. recently. What yeah. is your, I wouldn't say manual, but what is your recommendations? I think, first of all, we need to have uh, an understanding of what we think anti-Semitism is, right? Um, um, to me, anti it's anti-Semitic if you uh, target or blame Jews um, for the actions of Israel. Uh, just it was it would be anti-Muslim to blame or target Jew Muslims for the actions of Iran or Saudi Arabia or any any other government. Um, to make a clear distinction between Jews and Jewish institutions and a state, Israel. Um, secondly, I think it's anti-Semitic to say that Israeli Jews don't have the right to live safely um, uh, and equally in Israel-Palestine. Um, uh, uh, and uh, that they deserve or have to be to be slaughtered. Um, um, but if you oppose uh, a Jewish state because you don't support the idea of states that favor one ethnic or religious or racial group, and you believe in the idea of states based on equality under the law, I don't think that one can call that bigotry. You can say it doesn't work. You can say it's naive. You can say you support partition into two uh, two states. But it is seems to me kind of perverse, even Orwellian, to say that the principle of equality under the law, which is something that we are struggling for in the United States, and I think many are struggling for in Europe, that that's an expression of bigotry, right? What's an expression of bigotry is treating one group differently than another because of their race or religion. Or, and so what I what is unfortunate is I think that supporters of the Israeli government, including Jewish institutions in Europe and the United States, use anti-Semitism to try to discredit or shut down people who want to make criticisms of Israel or even criticisms of Zionism. I think pro-Palestinian activists need to ensure that they are not targeting Jews and Jewish institutions and make it clear that they have a vision of safety and equality and freedom for everybody. Um, if they don't, that's a problem. Then that's anti-Semitism. But it's also a problem to try to conflate uh, anti-Zionism uh, with anti-Semitism. Because if you say that Palestinians are anti-Semites if they're not Zionists, you're calling all Palestinians anti-Semites, which is a very dehumanizing thing to do. And it makes no sense. Why would a Palestinian not be an anti-Zionist? Zionism has been very bad for Palestinians. It started, it led to their dispossession in 1948. You can't ex expect anything other than that people, that Palestinians would be anti-Zionist. The question is what kind of anti-Zionists are they? Are they anti-Zionists who want to expel and kill Jews? Or are they anti-Zionists who want to live in equality alongside Jews? And I think that, I believe also that when Jews stand alongside Palestinians in a struggle for mutual liberation, that is one of the best ways to fight against anti-Semitism because it shows that this is not a struggle of our tribe versus their tribe, of Jew versus Palestinian. It's a struggle for a certain set of basic principles about how people should be treated. And it's a struggle that, that involves both Jews and Palestinians and people from all different walks of life on the basis of that principle. And I think then if you do that, then that is a refutation of the idea that to be pro-Palestinian is to be anti-Jewish. One very brief question, and the, sure. the consequence of that point, would that yeah. not be, and I know this is a big yeah. question, but it can say yeah. that what seems to be the only just and peaceful solution is a one state with the equal rights for, for all and not two separate states. Uh, look, I think that the most moral 
the most just solution would be one state with equality for everybody. That said, in the real world, one doesn't always get that. So if Palestinians and Israeli Jews were to both support partition, if there was a negotiation of a partition and it was endorsed, let's say, in some kind of referendum, it had some legitimacy among both peoples, then I would say, fine, you know, that th they have accepted those compromises and it will certainly make lives better, I think, safer and freer for, for Palestinians and I think for Israeli Jews as well. Uh, again, I'm skeptical that, that that's still possible, but if people want to prove me wrong, I would certainly recognize it as a, as a huge improvement over where we are now. Nina Bynard, thank you for your work, your inspiration, thank you. and thank you for talking to us. My pleasure. It's nice to meet you. Det var min samtale med Peter Beinart. Det essay, vi refererer til, det hedder There is Jewish Hope for Palestinian Liberation. It must survive, og er blevet trygt i New York Times. Han har også skrevet en meget, meget interessant bog, der hedder The Crisis of Zionism. Den udkom i 2012. Og hvis man i øvrigt vil følge med i, hvad Peter Beinart foretager sig, så kan man abonnere på hans konto på Substack, hvor han temmelig ofte lægger videoer ud, hvor han sammen med kloge mennesker analyserer situationen. Den her samtale var produceret og redigeret af vores vidunderlige ven og hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge taler vi med Ravinda Kaur, som er en indisk forsker, der har skrevet en helt fantastisk bog om Modis vej til magten, om det moderne Indien. Hvad det er for et nationalt opbygningsprojekt, som Modi har gennemført i Indien. Hvorfor hun mener, at Indien er vinderen i kampen mellem USA og Kina på den globale scene. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Tak for, at I lyttede med. Jeg håber, I lytter med igen næste uge.